Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin Memories on Pioneer 90.1 KSRQ online, radionorthland.org. And don't forget, you can check us out online in the moment at tunein.com. So hey, that with all that out of the way, it's Glenn Broggett with you once again, along with my co-host down there deep in the heart of Texas. And now, uh, yes, uh, it's it's starting to get warm up here. I could only imagine what it's uh, been doing down there. Uh, big welcome, of course. We always bring the weather into question every time we uh, do our intros. Mike McCurdy, the Grizzled Vet, what's happening? Wrestling memories and weather, live on KS. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, we're, we're, we're sneaking. True, we're true we're meteorologists. Close to the nineties. <laughs> oh boy, yeah. Right now, right now, man. Uh, we're at about at, as of this recording, we're about eighty-seven. Oh shit! Yeah. That, that, that's that's some Texas temp right there. Yeah, that bites a little bit. That 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 really hurts. <laughs> we are actually eighty-eight right now, so you and I are about the same. Oh, I well, we linked up. up. Our universes, our climate areas have. Com- yeah, it's warm. You uh, but any anyway. snow in the wintertime. Well, yeah, yeah. You just be glad you don't have snow. <laughs> well, when you guys do get snow, it's like we got to shut down the world because you guys just don't have the preparedness plan. Everything. I mean, come on, it's snow in Texas. No, my God. When it snows, Texas shuts down, man. <laughs> Bye, God, Mike. Uh, well, let's get right. Uh, talk about before we get to our guests. Of course, as of this recording, we're only. Uh, what a day or so removed from hearing the news of the passing of pro wrestling legend, uh, just a legend across the board. We're talking about Sheiky Baby, the Iron Sheik, Hussein Khosro Ali Basari, passing away at the age of 81. Yeah, he's up, he's up there making superstar Billy Graham humble. <laughs> Isn't it crazy that he passed away right around the time Pat Robertson, the televangelist turned uh, 700 club host, and uh, Pat Cooper, the comedian, used to be on Howard Stern. I mean, there's going to be some uh, some roasting going on up there. I I will not say anything negative about Pat Robertson. I think enough people have said that uh, about him themselves. Um, yeah, no, just like three, just boom, 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 all like within a, you know the one day. You know. And another weird thing, you know, we had the passing superstar Billy Graham just like a couple weeks ago, and now the Iron Sheik. I met both of those men in 2009 at CAC, and as a result of Superstar Billy Graham is how I had my very interesting weekend with the Iron Sheik. So, and got a little a little tie in there. You know, both guys I got a chance to meet and got pictures with them and all that. And Sheik was a good guy. I mean, when I met him, he was fun. He was exactly what you expected from you know the Iron Sheik. Uh, you know, very entertaining and very relevant. Everybody knew who he was. People who don't even watch wrestling were like. Oh, no, not the Sheik, because Sheik was pop culture. You know, from Howard Stern to the shoot interviews to the, you know, I can't say it in Sheik words because we're on, you know, radio at noon on a Sunday. But, you know, you know, the the Hulk Hogan, I make it, you know, and after that, yeah, we all know the Sheik. Everybody knew the Sheik. The humble, the humble we can use on Sunday mornings. The humble, we cannot use the other one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is quite the character. I, I mean, uh, the Howard Stern stuff, uh, you know. Uh, you know the kind of the the dealings he had with his, uh, I guess the, the agent to pro wrestling. Uh, you know, for as far as photographs and whatever bookings, Eric Sims. You know, those two had a very uh, interesting friendship relationship, working friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and there was a few other characters that kind of got into the Sheik's uh, orbit. Uh, do you think Brian Blair can wrestle a little easier tonight, knowing the Sheiky baby has passed on to to the great beyond? 
He might. He might wrestle easier. Hogan doesn't have to worry about, you know, having his back broken or his leg broken. So a, a lot of people can rest easier thanks to the Sheik. That was one of the great things about him. And, you know, for our listeners, we are in talks with Keith Elliott Greenberg to come on our show and here in the next week or two to discuss the life and times of the Iron Sheik. And the fun part about it is Sheik is one of those, you don't know what stories were real and what stories weren't. <laughs> but, Sheik was a very interesting character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least you're not going to get, I mean, yeah, he told his uh, share of tales he's in the pro wrestling business, by God, but... Yeah, they're not on the Hulk Hogan level, but anyway, as far as exaggeration. But Sheik, yeah, he Cosworth will be missed because, you know, it's kind of cool the way um, Sheik had his ties to uh, Minnesota, you know, you know, working with, you know, one of the very, you know, basically coming into the States and, you know, getting into the pro wrestling business via Vern Gagne and the AWA and then kind of helping and staying on to help train, co-train. I mean, he did a lot of stuff here in Minnesota, and I do believe his wife, uh, his missus, was from the state. Yes, yes. Uh, um, the Iron Sheik documentary they did on Annie. Yeah, she's from uh, the Minnesota area, and they were together forty-seven years, I believe it was. That was one thing I did not realize, because I couldn't believe that she could stay married to one, or one person could be with a sheik that long. Um, you know, I was a little surprised by that, and obviously, you know, he has his daughters, and we all heard the the story on the Annie documentary about the daughter that you know was murdered by a ex boyfriend. <laughs> Sheik had a rough life. Sheik had a great life, and you know, I'm looking forward to talking with Keith Greenberg in a couple weeks, and you know, talk a little bit more about him. And you know, I would share my story, but unfortunately, it takes like a long period of time. It's about a 10 or 15 minute kind of soliloquy of my weekend in the CAC with Sheik. I can say though, it ended with me getting kissed on the cheek and telling me that I was his friend. I was like, okay. Well, there you go, man. That's the <laughs> ultimate endorsement. But there you yeah. Go. Uh, it's again a passing. I mean, we also uh, lost not too long ago Beverly Shade. I mean, you talk about another uh, friend of the show, also uh, a friend of the CAC. Uh, I mean, that was another passing. That uh, again, what a hell of a gal she was. Oh, Beverly Shade, man! I I almost shed a little tear when I heard that one because Beverly Shade was a wonderful one. As tough as she was in the ring, she was just as you know sweet of a woman outside of the ring. A little salty, though. A little salty. You know, you want to sit down and she'll tell you a story. She might tell you a couple stories that would make you blush. But, you know, wonderful lady and very sorry to hear of her passing. But, you know, I mean, better pine better. She was in hospice care. So, you know, she's in she's in better hands now and she's not hurting anymore. So, yeah. you know, and we have the memories and we have the, uh, you know, there's footage on, on the Internet. You can see her and all that. So well, we still have her. And, of course, we have our interview with her for our listeners who want to go back into the archives and kind of learn a little bit about Beverly Shade, but yeah, she she was a wonderful lady. Absolutely. And Mike, we have a guest lined up, and of course I mentioned the CAC and all of that, but you have a guest, uh, and you booked a good one here, so let's get right to it. We don't want to hold them uh, back any longer. I do, I do. I reached out to our guest uh, uh, recently here, about a week or so ago, the Cauliflower Island Club made a uh, announcement of some of the posthumous awards that will be handed out at this year's reunion in August, Las Vegas, Nevada. It's the 50-something. I can't remember. I've not been since 2016, unfortunately. But, uh, no, his father is going to be receiving a posthumous award at the CAC. He will be there in Vegas to uh, accept it. But I'm going to you know, give our listeners a little bit of a treat. I'm going to let our guest tell the listeners who his father was. But first, I'm going to introduce our guest for this week's show. He is a commentator with Metroplex Wrestling here in Bedford, Texas, a weekly show. They've been running weekly for many, many years, one of the most, the bigger 
Power Promotions around here in the uh, in the Fort Worth area, and also, like I said, his father, legend in the in the professional wrestling world. Our guest today is none other than Cody Cox. Cody, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, Cody, I said I was going to allow you to uh, tell our listeners your father is receiving a posthumous award for our listeners. Who is your father? So my father was the uh, great killer Carl Cox. Um, and this is actually going to be the 57th annual uh, Cauliflower Alley Club. Yes, 57th. Uh, very excited. Yes, uh, Brian Blair, the president uh, of the Cauliflower Alley Club, reached out several weeks ago and asked about uh, honoring my father. And, you know, my brother and I both were very excited to, uh, to hear that news. And so we're excited to be there. And we're looking forward to being in Las Vegas the, uh, the last week of August. Now, this won't be your first uh, trip to the Cauliflower Alley Club in Vegas. You were there... Uh, how however many years ago? Because that's where yeah, I, I was there. You. I met you. And yeah, it was, when um, you was absolutely. Uh, 2010, uh, 2010. I believe was yeah. That, that's the my that's been my only trip thus far. Uh, so this will be my second time going. We had a great time when we were there back in 2010, and uh, looking forward to this year as well. Now, you know, let's tell listeners a little bit about the Cauliflower Alley Club. You said 2010 was the only time you've been able to go. What are some of your memories from that? Because I remember I got a chance to meet your father, and, you know, I thought that was great because I'm obviously a historian. I know a lot about, uh, you know, his career in the ring and all that, and it was a pleasure to meet him. But what were some of your memories, you know, going there, not just yourself, but, you know, with your dad? Because, I mean, obviously he was having a great time. I saw him talking with a lot of the guys that, you know, he got to work in the ring with. Oh, absolutely. And that was probably, you know, my favorite part about it was just seeing him reconnect with all of these guys, these friends that he had uh, made over the years that he hadn't seen or talked to in, you know, 20 or 30 years in some cases. Uh, guys like Ted DiBiase, Ken Patera, uh, guys like that, just really sitting there as a fly on the wall and listening to them tell these stories and talk about, you know, going up and down the roads and all the different promoters and promotions that they work for. Um, and, and just seeing them really talk and interact with one another. That's my favorite memory. I remember one night just sitting there uh, with him, DiBiase, and Patera, and just laughing my ass off for hours <laughs> as they were just telling all sorts of stories. Um, and, and, but, and, but like I said, also just seeing the joy it brought him because a lot of times, as, as many people know in professional wrestling, like you make friends, um, but unfortunately you don't really keep up with people. Uh, you're not seeing somebody all the time. You're not talking to them a lot. But and they hadn't talked in years, but just seeing them like reconnect, it was like, and, and my dad even told me this later on, they basically picked up right where they left off. It was as if they had just seen each other a few days prior. So that was really cool. And I was glad my dad, my dad was able to experience that for sure. That's definitely one of the fun things about Call for Alley. And you kind of be a fly on the wall. I was, I was notorious for that. I would just love to kind of sit in the background and listen to the guys telling stories, you know, from... You know, back when they were like in their 20s and these guys are now, you know, 60, 70, but they're acting like it was yesterday. I did oh, yeah. an interview, oh, it was in 2014. We had uh, gorgeous Gary Young on um, IHWE Radio. He was going into the Texas Wrestling Hall of Fame. And we were able to get Mick Foley to come on the show. He was, you know, when he heard Gary was going to be on, he wanted to come on and be a guest. And they hadn't talked in 20 years. Just, you know, as Mick said, there was no heat. Nothing happened. They just kind of went their separate ways. And, you know, you kind of lose right. But they started talking like, you know, they had seen each other yesterday morning and just told stories yeah. for an hour. Like, you know, hey, Gary, how's it going? Like they'd seen them. That's the great thing about 
the business. There's a lot of these guys still connect like that. And some like Call for Harley Club allows that to happen. Yeah, no, and that's so amazing to hear. And, and it happens all the time. Um, and I remember my dad, you know, exchanging numbers with guys he hadn't seen and, and keeping up with them, um, you know, for a little bit until, you know, he'd passed about uh, a year and a half afterwards. But uh, just, you know, talking about some of the great friends and, and everything that he made and, and just being there was, was really something. And for me, as a lifelong wrestling fan, um, just being there and being able to see everyone and, and witness everyone and, and talk and, and listen to stories, it, it's really a great experience. Now, growing up uh, when you were a kid, because well, obviously you know, your father was wrestling you know, before you were born on it. What was it like growing up knowing and learning about you know your father's career in the ring and learning about his? Because, like I said, legend in the ring. Well, and it was interesting. So my dad retired when I was like two years old. So I have no memory of, of actually seeing my dad wrestle or anything. But learning about it uh, as I got older, you know, me and my brother, um, and then kind of seeing tapes. Because obviously, you know, now you can go on YouTube and pull anything up. Well, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, um, we only saw what people had tapes of that they had sent my dad. And my dad didn't really keep up with anything. He didn't have a lot of his memorabilia or stuff on tape. So every once in a while, he would talk to someone that would have a tape of something, and they would send it. So it was cool to be able to see this thing, uh, to see his matches over the years, and, and you know, tell kids at school, of course, you know, my dad was a professional wrestler and, and all that good stuff. Um, and then, you know, whenever WWF or even WCW would come to town, my dad had friends in both organizations. So uh, we would get to go backstage and, and meet people and have just all sorts of pictures um, with different people that we met uh, over the years. So it, it was really cool and, and, and really neat. And I don't know if I really even began to appreciate it enough until I got a little bit older um, and realized, especially as we're around other people, like how honored my dad was and, and how how um, adored he was in professional wrestling because everyone we would come across um, would give him a great big old hug and, and just put him over and talk all, and say all these great things about him and how much they loved him. So that was really cool to see, especially going back to when we were there uh, at the Cauliflower Alley Club in 2010. Now, as a kid, how was that for you? You know, you're, you said your dad would get, they'd give him tickets to go to the shows. And obviously, you're a kid. You're backstage. You're seeing the guys that you're seeing on TV. You know, and they're treating your father like, oh my God. You know, they knew who he was. How was that for you as a kid? I mean, getting to see the stars you're watching on TV and seeing how they interacted with your dad. Yeah, it was very, it was very, uh, very amazing um, to see, especially like you, like you just said, guys that I watched on TV. Um, basically, you know, becoming like a fanboy uh, over my dad. I, I'll tell you a story. I remember we went backstage with WCW Monday Nitro was here. This probably would have been 98, I think. Um, and so we went backstage and in the catering area, you walk in, everyone's sitting down. Um, Scott Hall uh, sees my dad walk in. And Scott Hall, as many people know, grew up in Florida. So he was a big fan of my dad's. And he literally jumps up out of his seat and almost knocks Ric Flair over just to try to make his way over to my dad to say hello. And he never met my dad before. Um, and so seeing things like that, like, oh, wow, Scott Hall knows who my dad is. <laughs> you know, um, that was really cool. When Brian Blair reached out to you and said that uh, they wanted to honor your father with this year's uh, posthumous award, this year's reunion. You know, what kind of emotion did that bring up for you, you know, realizing that even after your father's passing, people are still recognizing him? I um, mean, it, it, it was very overwhelming. Um, you know, I had kind of been back and forth uh, messaging different people at the Colorful Alley Club um, over the last little bit. And so I knew it was a possibility. 
but you know, when he called and I saw his name on the caller ID, I'm like, okay, this is it. And had a really nice conversation with him. He couldn't have been nicer. Um, you know, we talked about my dad a little bit, but, but it was just, it was just very touching, you know, because again, my dad, I mean, he stopped wrestling in 1983. So, I mean, that's, you know, 40 years ago. And the fact that people, you know, are still remembering him that I can easily access, you know, clips of, of his matches, his promos and whatnot on YouTube. Um, it's amazing. And so I was, I was very excited about it. And as soon as I got off the phone, I called my brother and, and told him the good news. And so we immediately started making plans to, to be out in Las Vegas because this is a, one, a once in a lifetime opportunity. And there's definitely a, no way we were going to miss out on this. Oh, no, this is something you're going to remember for forever. And obviously, you know, this will be something that's recorded in history because the Cauliflower Club keeps the archives of all the past winners over the last 57 years. So this will be something that, you know, 20 years from now, people can look back and go, oh, in 2023, this is recognized. That's got to be a great, you know, honor for you. Oh, definitely, for sure. Now, for our listeners, I mean, we've talked about, you know, your father going in and all that. Let's give him a little, can we give him a little background on your father for our listeners who may not know much about Killer Carl Cox? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my dad started wrestling in 1956, wrestled all the way to 1983, um, and literally wrestled almost everywhere in the world. Uh, you know, he used to always tell me stories. His favorite places to wrestle were Australia and Japan. And, you know, he was huge in Australia. Um, I will, I've met people from Australia throughout the years who, once wrestling comes up and I tell them who my dad is, and they remember him. And so that's been really cool to see. I've had different fans reach out to me, you know, through social media, um, saying, I remember watching your dad, you know, when I was a kid, blah, 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 right? Um, he, he, he was a hated villain. <laughs> he was probably most known for his, uh, his heel work. Um, my dad actually invented the Brain Buster. He was the first wrestler to do the Brain Buster uh, over the years. Um, and that, just like a lot of things, that happened by accident. Uh, had a guy up for a suplex, kind of slipped and fell and came down a different way. And uh, they started calling it the Brain Buster. Um, and, but just really wrestled, you know, like I said, almost every territory except, uh, you know, New York, as he called it, except the World Wrestling Federation. Um, and he always said that was his one regret. He had the opportunity to go there one time um, uh, to, to work with Bruno. And he had some bookings in Japan that he didn't want to, you know, uh, miss out on or cancel. And he thought, okay, well, this opportunity will come up again. And unfortunately for him, it, it never did. But uh, other than that, he, he loved everywhere he went. Um, wrestled a lot in Florida, Georgia, um, all over the U.S., like the Japan, Australia. Um, his favorite promoter, he would always tell me to work for, was Jim Barnett. Loved Jim Barnett. Uh, worked for him quite a bit in Australia. Uh, had had plenty of, of good stories about Jim Barnett. <laughs> That's the thing about Jim Barnett, you know, he's a guy that, you know, all through the years, these people have been putting out books, whether it's their own biography or someone else, a well-established writer has been putting something together. That's the one guy that I've been waiting for someone to finally write the book on because of just how many different things he touched in the pro wrestling business, his involvement even back to the early days of pro wrestling on TV. You think about that, how far that in his development of world, ch of you know, your dad was in WCW before WCW, their uh, right. dad, world championship wrestling. I mean, this was a real, real sharp mind uh, for the, in the business and uh, for your dad to be in good favor with Jim, that says an awful lot too, because of just, just the way Jim kind of kept himself in the picture all these years with the business, uh, even up until his death. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, and you think about it, Jim Barnett was around a long time. I mean, he was working for uh, WWE up until, you know, the mid-90s, I believe. And so, 
Um, yeah, he had great things to say about Barnett. There's actually a really good documentary, and the name of it escapes me now, but it's a, it was produced in Australia about you know the Australian version of uh, World Championship Wrestling down there. And a lot of great, you know, old Australian wrestlers were interviewed for it. And there's a lot of good Jim Barnett stories. And, and my dad is heavily featured in that, um, of course, as well. Uh, I can't remember the name, but but I'm sure if you, if you Google, you can find it. And it's definitely worth checking out. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just the way that they were able to build a, a territory and really kind of take advantage of a real fertile area. And to have guys like uh, your dad or Spyrus Arion or Mark Lewin coming down there. And then that really kind of opened the door for that, for Australia, that continent to become a, a, a must-go-to, kind of like uh, for a period of time, kind of like the way Japan was for for a bit. I mean, just because it was really it was fertile land, fertile territory, and, and the fans were just rabid to see something like this. And uh, again, it was just a great time and a great opportunity. Well, and and it's kind of basically it was ahead of its time too. So, and there's a lot of that footage on YouTube. Um, when you look on YouTube, yes, it's all in black and white, of course. But it's still like great quality footage, like great picture, great camera work, um, really good stories. You know, they were doing really good things there um, in Australia. One of my dad's favorite stories to tell was so and he would go down there for six months at a time. And I think maybe it was the last time he was leaving the territory, I believe. Um, of course, they had to write uh, a way for him to you know, a reason why he was leaving. And so the ring announcer, a guy by the name of Jack Lil, who was American, um, was also coming back to the U.S. after being there for a long time. Um, so basically, they had my dad give Jack Lil a brain buster on the concrete floor. And then they made an announcement that the, the act was so horrendous, the Australian government was having my dad deported. <laughs> and so they had so they had cameras like following my dad to the airport, showing him getting on the airplane and being sent back to the U.S., and he would always say the funny thing was Jack Lil, the ring announcer, was on that very same flight <laughs> going back home as well. Um, but he had just great stories about Australia. Um, and that's one place I haven't been to yet that I definitely want to go to someday um, because everyone I meet that's that's been there loves it. And every wrestling fan I meet from Australia just you know has nothing but great things to say about my dad. So that's pretty amazing. Oh, 100 percent. And I mean, again, we're going to get back uh, talking a little bit about uh, your father, Killer, Killer Carl Cox. I mean, he was in the territories. That means he's probably spent his fair share of time on the road with his comrades. And a, a thing that in the pro wrestling business, a lot of the some of the boys are uh, more well known for than others is the art of the practical joke, the rib. How far you want to take it? Uh, it's kind of up to the interpretation of the the river. Let's talk a little bit about your dad. Was he much into the the practical joke aspect? Uh, you know, to keep things light uh, during long hauls with some of the places he's worked through the years. Oh my God, yes. Uh, my dad. That was one thing he loved doing. Probably more than just about anybody. He was ribbing it, ribbing people. Even after he retired, he was ribbing uh, family members, friends, and whatnot. Um, a couple of the stories that come to mind was so I mentioned Japan. He loved going to Japan. So my dad actually had so he had a brother. Long story short, my dad had a brother that had uh, fought in World War II, and and was deceased, but had like a glass eye. And so my dad had kept his brother's glass eye for some odd reason, right? And so he would go to Japan and he would take this glass eye with him and he would just play all sorts of jokes on the people of Japan. Like he would put the eye in his soup and he would call them over and say, look what I found in my soup. And they would freak out um, or he'd be wrestling. And then he would like pretend like his eye came out and just to watch the fans, you know, freak out in the front row, different things like that. Um, he, he told me a story about how uh, one time over in Japan, him and Dick Murdoch, who Dick Murdoch was actually uh, my godfather, um, they had they bought these little water guns. 
And so wherever they went, they would like squirt these water guns without people knowing. And he said they went to this restaurant one time and they started squirting the water guns up in the air and making the people that worked at the restaurant think that there was a leak coming from the ceiling. <laughs> so where they had all these people, they, they brought in this ladder and they're going up to the ceiling trying to see what's going on. And every time they think, okay, the leak's taken care of, then they're squirting the water again. So he just, he just loved to have a good time. And that's how a lot of the guys, um, you know, basically killed time on the road. Uh, by you know messing around with one another and, and ribbing each other, just you know all in good fun for the most part, anyways. <laughs> well, yeah, you mentioned Dick Murdoch, and when I think of you know, I think of your dad. I mean, I don't know Murdoch always kind of comes up too because it was they were so similar in certain ways, just the styles. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, Dickie even adopted the Brainbuster finisher. Uh, yep. But I mean, let's just talk about that connection with uh, between your father and, and Dick, because I mean, from what it sounds like, this was something a very a tight tight sort of uh, friendship, but. Let's talk a little bit about it because we always hear about Dick and Dusty, but let's hear about Dick and Carl. Yeah, I mean, they were, they were like brothers. You know, they became really close right after uh, Murdoch got into the business. Um, and that's why, you know, my dad named him, you know, the godfather of both me and my brother. Um, and even after uh, my dad retired, you know, Murdoch would make trips uh, here to Dallas to visit my dad, or my dad would go up to Amarillo, where Murdoch was living at the time, to, uh, to visit Murdoch. So they just became really, really close where there's – there's a clip on um, somewhere on YouTube where even after my dad retired, Murdoch was still ribbing my dad. And so, and I just saw this not too long ago. I, I want to say this was in Mid South Wrestling. So Murdoch had this list that he brought, brings out with him of the top ten most hated people of all time. And there's like some notable people on there. And if you look closely, and he doesn't say the name or anything on TV, but if you look closely on this list, there's the name Herb Gerwig. Well, Herb Gerwig is my dad's real name. <laughs> So even then, he was still trying to you know, rip my dad whenever he could, um, and vice versa. So, yeah, like so my dad loved Murdoch like a brother. And, and when Murdoch passed, um, I want to say it was 96, I believe, I know that really, really got to my dad. I don't know if I ever saw my dad get as emotional as he did when he found out that Murdoch passed because they were just super, super close. Now you talk about uh, Mid-South. Uh, he, he had a chance to, to work uh, in that territory. Uh, you know, held some championships, uh, but also uh, well, he worked with you know Leroy McGurk and Bill Watts. Now, what was? Uh, can you remember him mentioning anything about the time working uh, in Mid South in regards to, to the promotion and some of the guys that he worked with? Uh, he's worked with JYD, I see. The, of course, Ken Patera. Let's talk a little bit about uh, you know his time in Mid South because. Again, this is more great history to hear from from a guy that yeah, his story needs to be a little bit more. I mean, we need we need more Carl Cox in our life. So let's not right. talk about the Mid South and his run there. For sure, that. for sure. So I think um, so he enjoyed working in Mid South and and he he actually liked Bill Watts. I know a lot of people didn't like Bill Watts over the years, but he would actually tell stories that um, Bill Watts, in his opinion, was the uh, cheapest promoter he'd worked for um, because he said Bill Watts would kind of try to stiff you on the payoffs a little bit if he could. So his favorite story to tell was Watts had this party at his house shortly after, I want to say it was the first show they did at the Superdome, uh, which my dad was a part of. And so he had this party, and uh, and he, Watts has this big swimming pool. And so my dad, in the middle of the party, decides that he's going to urinate in the swimming pool. for Like, stand, <laughs> standing on the outside, not in the pool, where people would know, standing on the outside of the pool for people to see. And Watts like, you know, Cox, why, why are you why are you uh, urinating in my swimming pool? And and my dad was like, Well, I helped pay for the damn thing by all the money I've drawn you. I think it's my uh, it's my right to piss in it. 
And so um, that was his favorite story to tell. And apparently uh, several other wrestlers might have jumped up and started uh, peeing in the pool as well uh, <laughs> when that happened. But um, but he enjoyed his time at Mid-South. And cause by that time, um, and that was towards the, the later end of his career, he was already living uh, here in Dallas. So it was convenient for him, whether it was, you know, in, going to Oklahoma or Louisiana or wherever. So, um, but I know he really enjoyed it up there. There was a match that was on the WWE Network. I'm not sure if it's still there or not because I know they move stuff around. But there was a tag match where it was him and JYD against the Wild Samoans, and not a very long match at all, but a, but a very good, entertaining, maybe seven minute match uh, for TV. So if, if that's still on there, or fans are able to check that out, I highly suggest it. Yeah, think about it today. I mean, just the, what the extended, ongoing legacy of the Samoans and their you know contribution to pro wrestling, right. Rafa Sika and the extended family. I mean, we're watching generations, and they. It seems like there's uh, another another you know Anoa'i or you know uh, or Fatu uh, you know in training. I mean, these guys are. It's like it's a constant family factory. But I mean, the workers they put through through the years. I mean, we all got to bring it back to Rafa and Sika. Those guys. I mean. Talk about the foundation layers. I mean, th- that tag team for many years, and not only in the Mid-South, WWF, wherever they went, they always seemed to, 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 to cause some really good chaos and also draw a lot of good uh, good, good, good crowds out there with, with them. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, we talk about, you know, dynasties in wrestling, and that might be, you know, the biggest dynasty of them all, right? It's, it's like you said, almost never-ending. <laughs> Just when you think there's no more left, then you hear about a new one coming up. Uh, through training but my dad liked uh working with those guys a lot and i remember anytime we would see any samoan on tv when i was watching wrestling he was just always talking about you know how tough Afa and sika were and how those were two guys you definitely did not want to mess with <laughs> <laughs> now talk about uh, he, he he spent some time in the florida territory of course um with eddie graham what was could, what were your dad's recollections of, of his time working in Florida? I mean, there's probably a couple different stints he, he put in, but working with some of the guys like the likes of Rocky Johnson, uh, Steve Kern, per se, or even a Johnny Weaver. Uh, what was your dad's uh, impression of Florida and, uh, you know, being with Eddie Graham, that association? I know he liked Florida a lot. That was probably, you know, his favorite place inside the U.S. to work. I mean, he loved living there. He lived there for a very long time. Um, really liked and got along well with um, with Eddie Graham. Um, from what I, I was told by my mom, you know, my dad was, of course, very upset when uh, when Eddie Graham, of course, passed away tragically. Um, but really enjoyed his time there. You know, you mentioned Rocky Johnson, um, and that's someone that my dad just really, really enjoyed. There's there's a picture out there. Uh, if you Google image search Killer Call Cox Rocky Johnson, I guarantee it's going to come up. It's of my dad biting a very bloody Rocky Johnson during a match. Um, well, last year, my brother, uh, Herb Jr., um, he got that picture tattooed on his arm. And it's amazing artwork. Uh, the tattoo artist did a great job. But that, that picture is now tattooed forever on my brother's arm. But um, it, it's an amazing picture. But he just loved working with, uh, with Rocky Johnson. Uh, you mentioned Johnny Weaver. Johnny Weaver was the guy that when you mentioned his name, I remember as a kid, he was one of the few in wrestling that would still call my dad probably on a you know monthly basis because I remember answering the phone so many times and saying, tell your dad it's Johnny Weaver. And, uh, and my dad would just keep, you know, always enjoy talking to him. Uh, those guys are really good friends over the years for sure. And one more thing before I uh, hand the mic back uh, to to my uh, grizzled vet, uh, he uh, was all. There's a photo I remember seeing in a, in a PWI, and then I ended up seeing some of this stuff on YouTube of uh, Killer Carl Cox in the Georgia Territory around 1979 
with being part of a stable that included a guy who was on a break from the AWA uh, for storyline reasons, Bobby Heenan. Now, this was a brief moment when Bobby Heenan and the Crusher were somehow uh, down in the um, some sort of exchange, but they were down in that Georgia territory. That was a kind of an interesting thing, reading about being from the AWA territory, uh, uh, from the AWA country like I am up here in Minnesota, just to kind of see that picture and kind of see some of that stuff thanks to YouTube about that association. So I'm so glad you mentioned that, because if we got off the, this call without uh, us talking about Bobby Heenan, I would have kicked myself. My dad loved Bobby Heenan. And he was the only person to ever manage my dad. It was the only time in my dad's career that he had a manager. And it was, and normally he didn't want one because he said there was times over the years where he was pitched by different promoters about having a different manager and he never wanted one, but he liked Bobby and he, he knew how good Bobby was. And so there was no doubt. He's like, yes, please put me with Bobby. And so, and it wasn't a very long amount of time, but that was basically one of the first iterations of the Heenan family. So at the time, Heenan managed my dad, uh, the mass superstar, um, big cat Ernie Ladd. And so he kind of had like this stable, um, you know, there in, in Florida. And there's, there's a famous angle where my dad was wrestling uh, Tommy Rich. And at the time, uh, Bobby Heenan, whenever it was time for the match to be over, he would light a, a cigar at ringside, like a victory cigar. And so they do this big angle and everyone's kind of fighting. And my dad takes the cigar from Heenan and burns Tommy Rich's eye. And it was a big deal. You know, he wasn't on TV for weeks. Or he was bandaged up, couldn't see. And so it was a really big angle, probably one of the most uh, famous angles my dad did in Florida at the time. Um, but, yeah, he loved Heenan. And, you know, Bobby Heenan is the one that would, would get his tickets when WWF would come to town. And then when he went to WCW, he would get his tickets for WCW. Um, yeah, he, no one loved Bobby Heenan like my dad did, for sure. <laughs> and the thing with Bobby, though, he was, you know, great as a manager. But, you know, he knew how to work as a manager. But if he had came time to get in the ring, Bobby was just as good and solid of a hand as some of the guys that he managed. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's why, you know, he had those neck issues later on in his career, because he would get in the ring and, and take bumps like you didn't see, you know, Jimmy Hart, Mr. Fuji, those guys taking bumps like Bobby Heenan did in WWF in the mid late 80s, um, because he could work and he had worked in the first part of his career. And I think that's another reason why my dad really liked him and respected him and got along with him early on, because he knew Bobby had wrestled, knew he could work, as opposed to where some of these other managers that would come along had never really stepped foot in the ring. Um, and another reason him and Bobby got along so well, they really had a very similar sense of humor. I mean, Bobby Heenan's known for this great sense of humor and very you know quick wit and, and fantastic one-liners. And, and my dad was the same way. And so they just really hit it off from the beginning. And that was another person that you know would, would constantly call my dad over the years just to check in on him and see how he was doing. Is that kind of kind of along the lines of uh, you know how like a Ken Patera would be with your your dad as well? I mean, because Ken Ken could be a little bit salty, but Ken's Ken. But did, did your dad have a pretty good relationship with Ken? I know you said they reconnected at a CAC. Yeah, I don't know if they kept in touch over the years like my dad did with others, but but yeah, he loved Patera. I remember um, him and Patera giving each other great big old bear hugs at uh, the Cauliflower Alley Club um, when they saw one another. Um, but yeah, so I know he really respected Patera, especially for, you know, the stuff he did, you know, his, his amateur background and, and the Olympics and whatnot. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the guy was double tough and double strong. I'll bring Mike Curdy back into this edition of Wrestling Memories. To go back a few minutes to what we were, you were talking about earlier, the documentary you were referring to is called Over the Top Rope. Yes. Thank you for that, Mike. I appreciate it. And then also. Yeah, great documentary. Have- yeah, I'm going to give Glenn a little bit of section. Let you know how much Glenn has thought about the idea of a Jim Barnett biography. 
Glenn, you have a title for that book, don't you? Yeah, it's I'm going to call it Jimsy, the life <laughs> of Jim Barnett. Go. There you, you just go. put a lot That's... of thought into this. <laughs> hey, I, mean, I, I, I would love to read that book. I mean, every, everyone I've ever heard talk about Jim Barnett, like everyone has a Jim Barnett story, whether it's the guys that were, you know, from the era of the, the early days of my dad, all the way to guys that were around in the 90s and 2000s. They all got a Jim Barnett story, so I'm sure that'd be fantastic. <laughs> And they all have the accent, you know, my, or the or the way he spoke, my, my boy. boy. <laughs> yep, everyone's got a Jim Barnett impression too. Yep, <laughs> they can make that like an oral history too, and have all the guys' uh, excerpts in the book talking about Jimsy. There you go, a nice little audio read, audio too, book right? Form. Yeah, <laughs> one big collection of people just doing Jim Barnett impressions. That'd be a great book. Yeah. <laughs> Now let's talk about uh, Texas for a little bit. You're, you know, your father wrestled here for a while, and this, you know, this is where you are, and this is where you were raised, and you know, you work with, like I said, with uh, MPX and all that. The fans nowadays, I mean, we all know this, and this is one thing I've learned in the years I've lived here. The fans still here in Texas love Texas wrestling, and they want to talk Texas wrestling. They want to tell your stories, their stories about Texas wrestling. You know, when you go to shows and you're working shows, and you know, many people find out who your father is. What are some of the stories that you hear? Because I know it has to be a regular occurrence. Oh, absolutely. And so my dad had wrestled, you know, in the Dallas area in the very early days of the Sportatorium before there was, you know, world-class championship wrestling, um, you know, going way, way back, uh, where him and Fritz von Erich were tag champs for quite some time um, in the area. But whenever I meet someone, um, you know, that when they find out who my dad is, you know, first they're, they're kind of, their mind is kind of blown. Um, and then they just talk about the brain buster. That's probably the number one thing that people talk about is, you know, the brain buster and, and the people that he quote unquote injured over the years with the brain buster, you know? And, and so that's kind of cool just to kind of be able to say, okay, there's a, a move that we see used on wrestling all the time now, every single week, um, to be able to say, Hey, my, my dad was the guy that, that innovated that. So, um, but yeah, when, when these fans come up to me and, and they find out who he is, that, that's that's for the most part what they want to talk about, or they talk about how, how much they hated him as a kid <laughs> because they were scared of him. So he was this, this, this big bad guy, this big villain. Um, and so, you know, things like that are all, I'll never get tired of hearing stuff like that. There's one story I've heard from uh, a few different guys. Uh, in fact, I think Black Bart might have told me the story at one point. Uh, there's a story that's kind of legendary, I guess, about your father, about a fan who. I believe they attacked him with an umbrella. I don't know that one. See, you're you're telling me new stuff now. Okay. Um, I thought you I thought you were going to go a different way because there is a story about I, I have about a fan attacking him. But I'll but I'll, I want to hear about this umbrella. <laughs> well, the story I've heard is that there was a fan who attacked him with I believe it was an umbrella, and security took the fan to the back and put them in a back room, and then your father went back after his match to speak with the fan if you get my drift. And <laughs> once he left the room, the fan was lying on the floor unconscious because your father did not take well to uh, being attacked with whatever it was that he was being hit with. <laughs> that, that that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I, hadn't heard, I hadn't heard that one, but, but yeah, that makes sense. I believe it was, um, I believe it was Bart that might have told me that story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice, nice. The, uh, the the story that I thought you were going with, I, I'll tell you, you mentioned Texas wrestling. So um, my dad had a, a great love for Gory Guerrero, you know, he worked for Gory Guerrero down in El Paso a handful of times, and he had told a story about how uh, he was wrestling there, and you know, my dad was a heel, of course, and he was coming back after a match, like walking, you know, to the back, and I guess some guy from the crowd, and you know, you got to keep in mind, 
back then it's not like now where there's these barricades or, or guardrails or anything. A lot of these these places they basically had like a rope or a string, right, that separated the fans from from the action. And so this guy, you know, basically goes under the rope and has a knife and is going at my dad with a knife, and my dad doesn't see him because his back is to him. Gory Guerrero, who was at the curtain getting ready to come out, sees this and runs and tackles the guy to keep the guy from, from basically stabbing my, my dad. And so my dad, you know, would always credit Gory Guerrero for, you know, perhaps saving his life. I remember we uh, got a chance to meet uh, Chavo Guerrero Jr. Uh, backstage at WCW show. And I remember my dad telling Chavo uh, that story and just how much he loved Gory. We've been talking about your father and his career and, you know, the posthumous award he'll be receiving at uh, the Cauliflower Alley Club in August. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, your career. As, as I've said, commentator with uh, Metroplex Wrestling, one of, I believe might be the only weekly uh, promotion in this area. Uh, but let's just kind of talk about, you know, your involvement in the business and kind of when that started and, you know, was your father around when that started and kind of, you know, what was his take on it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I began commentating. So I've been doing this for about 17 years now. So um, back in the uh, early to mid 2000s, there was another promotion that's no longer around that ran out of Arlington, Texas called PCW, Professional Championship Wrestling. Mm -hmm. And they every year would do a show where they would honor, you know, a, a legend, an old timer, someone from the past. And so they, you know, they'd honor people like Lord Alfred Hayes, Skandar Akbar. Um, well, one year they wanted to honor my dad. And so I was a lifelong wrestling fan, but I'd never, you know, thought about getting into wrestling or or even had gone to any indie shows. You know, the only shows I'd been to up to that point were, you know, WWF, WCW. And so um, we go to out to a show. They're going to honor my dad. And while we're there, I remember the uh, the ring announcer of the show kind of half joking with me like, oh, did you ever want to be a wrestler like your dad? And I said, no, I said, I've always kind of thought about doing some announcing. And he said, really? Well, that's interesting because we're actually looking for somebody because uh, they were doing two shows a week at that time. They had a Friday show and a Saturday show, and they were needing somebody for their Friday show. So we exchanged information, and then a few weeks later, he reached out to me and was like, are you still interested? I said, yeah. And that's pretty much how it started. So I started doing ring announcing on their Friday shows, and then um, they had commentary on their Saturday shows. So then I started doing commentary. I even did a little bit of uh, heel manager work uh, for a little bit as well. Um, with them and then um, and my dad would come to the shows I think he was I think he was a little surprised at first that, that I wanted to get involved in some way because I hadn't really shown you know any any interest up to that point but um, but both him and my mom would come to shows and they were very supportive and he always enjoyed um, seeing my stuff and then if commentary you know we would have DVDs of shows so I would you know play him some of the shows and, and he would listen and enjoy it so so he I think he, he loved it he liked the fact that um, that one of his sons was involved in wrestling, but I think he liked it even more that I wasn't wrestling. Cause I think if I had wanted to actually be a wrestler, he might've been against that just because of all the different, um, you know, possibilities of injuries and whatnot over the years. I mean, I'm sure he still would have been supportive, but I think he, he really liked the fact, um, you know, that I was doing the announcing and, and I enjoyed it too. And, and I still do. So, um, worked PCW up until they shut down in, in 2010, uh, and then started working for MPX in 2011. And I've been with them ever since. And you're right. They are the only, uh, weekly show, not just in the area, but, uh, in the state of Texas, the, the only weekly show we run every Saturday. So I do the ring announcing and the play by play commentary for them. And I actually also work for a second organization, um, in the area called Matt war pro wrestling. And they only run shows once every few months. Um, but, uh, but MPX is where I'm at, you know, every single Saturday 
like I said, I've been doing it 17 years. Um, don't know when I'm going to stop. <laughs> I always said, uh, if I stop having fun, then I guess it's when it's time to, uh, to stop doing it, but I still enjoy it and, and look forward to the shows each and every single Saturday. You said your dad was probably glad that you didn't like get into wrestling. I actually in the ring. What were some of the things like, you know, maybe some advice he gave you growing up or stories he might've told you kind of, they didn't really involve wrestling, but just like life lessons. Cause you know, a lot of the guys, when I've sat in locker rooms with them, they'll tell you stories as kind of a, you know, way to learn something or, you know, not really directly wrestling, but what was some of the advice your father gave you, uh, over the years? That's a great question. Um, his, you know, his biggest thing was, you know, don't let anyone walk over you and always make sure you stand up for yourself, like just in life in general, whether that's in professional wrestling, whether it's that, you know, your, your real job in life, whatever, you know, and so he would just always talk about, and I think he had told us stories, and I can't remember specifics, but I remember him telling, you know, my brother and I both several stories about different promoters, you know, trying to sit him on pay, like promise him one, one amount. And then at the end of the day, oh, well, you know, we didn't do so well at the gate, brother. Here's a, <laughs> we only have this, but really stand up for himself and say, no, this is the amount you promised me. And this is what we're going to stay to, or we're going to have problems. And so all through that, I remember even in school, you know, just talking about, Hey, don't let anyone bully you. If, if someone's um, giving you problems, stand up for yourself. Uh, Cause you know, the big thing in school and it's still like this today, but um, you know, they, they don't like fighting. And so my dad would always tell us, look, if you're fighting and it's because you stood up for yourself, you're not going to be in trouble when you get home. If you're in trouble at school, that's one thing, but you won't be in trouble when you get home if it's because you were standing up for yourself or standing up for somebody else. So that, that was his big thing, because he didn't like to see uh, people get bullied or people get taken advantage of. You said you were two when your father retired from wrestling, um, so this may not affect you on you too much, but what was life like at home? Being that, you know, he was on the road going from territory to territory, you know, what were some of the things that he talked about as far as that goes, or maybe your mother talked about, you know, as far as that goes with him? Because the life of a wrestler, they're on the road so much, they're not home a lot back in the territory. Right. And so, you know, so my mom was actually my dad's second wife. He had been married once before. And I think, you know, that is what led to his divorce from his first wife because he was gone all the time. Um, I was lucky enough to where she had. They married in 1979, and then he retired in 82. So she only had to kind of put up with that for, for a few years. Um, but I do remember uh, her telling me a story about how uh, December of 1980, so I was born in November of 80, so I was only a month old, and apparently the Dallas area had just a, a horrendous winter. Um, like it, records were broken and everything that winter um, to where you know electricity was going out. Uh, and she was having a real hard time, and he was not home. He was, you know, wrestling. I think he was overseas at that time, uh, to be honest. Um, and so her just having to kind of do it all herself and, you know, make sure things got taken care of and, and try to rely on friends and family where she could. Um, but I know that was something where she was glad he was retiring. I mean, not that she wanted him out of wrestling or anything like that, but, you know, she knew that he was happy. He'd finally come to a point where he decided, okay, um, I've been doing this long enough. You know, he wrestled for 27 years. And so uh, I think she was glad definitely to have him home so she didn't have to, uh, you know, put up with winters like that alone anymore. <laughs> what did he do after he retired and what, when you were growing up? What are some of your memories of your dad then? Yeah, so, uh, so again, so he retired. I want to say his very last match was October of 83, I think. And so the next year he went to work for the Dallas Sheriff's Department. So he became a, a jail guard at one of the, the uh, jails in downtown Dallas. And he did that for, 
about 11 or 12 years, I think, until he retired from that, and he really enjoyed it. Um, he would always tell stories about how, especially early on when he first started doing it uh, in the mid-'80s, how there would be inmates at the jail that would recognize him, <laughs> that knew who he was. And his favorite thing to, to say to them, because they would say, oh, I remember uh, I used to watch you all the time. And my dad would say, well, guess what? Now I'm watching you. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, he, he enjoyed doing it. He made he made good friends, um, you know, working for the sheriff's department over the years, uh, some of which, you know, actually still keep in touch with my brother and I. Because um, just because of how, again, going back to what I said earlier, just how much my dad was loved, whether it was in professional wrestling or working for the Dallas Sheriff's Department. So, like I said, he did that up until 95 or 96, I believe. Um, and then that's when he, you know, fully retired and, and enjoyed retirement. <laughs> Let's tell our listeners real quick before we end this interview. Uh, your father, you know, the ring name, because you said your father's real name was Herb Gerwig. Uh, Killer Carl Cox, uh, Carl and Cox are not spelled with C's. They are with K's because it was infamous and they use this. I've seen footage where they using it for. He had the initials KKK. What was kind of the origin of the name and how did that come about? Great question. So when, when he first started wrestling, he wrestled a little bit under his real name, Herb Gerwig. And then there was a promoter up in uh, the Cleveland area, I remember him telling me, that because his last name Gerwig was very close to the baseball player Lou Gehrig at the time, who was very big, um, they called him Don Gehrig for a handful of matches, trying to pass off that he was Lou Gehrig's brother. Uh, that only lasted for a short amount of time. And then he told me a different promoter just gave him the name Carl Cox. And it was with C's in the beginning, because there's there certain um, programs that I've seen out there that have Carl Cox spelled with a C. Well, he was legit. He was wrestling someone, a, a gentleman that was much older in the ring, and the guy legit had a heart attack and died while my dad was wrestling him. So, of course, as professional wrestling will do, they turned it into a story <laughs> and basically claimed that my dad killed the guy in the wrestling. So they started calling him killer. Well, since Killer was spelled with a K, they're like, all right, well, let's spell Carl and Cox with Ks. Oh, and that's three initials that everyone uh, despises and hates. Let's run with that. And so, of course, they never, and you definitely could not do that today. Um, no. Of course, absolutely not. But at the time, and it wasn't like he had, like, some sort of racist gimmick. There was never, you know, he, was, he never did anything like that. But it was kind of implied just because he would wear the vest with three Ks on the back, which, you know, if anyone asked, it was like, well, those are my initials, Killer Carl Cox. Um, but they never did anything, like I said, to, to play into it any further to where even when he turned uh, babyface, he was still wearing the initials. And when he was in like places like Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, um, and I've seen this, the African-American fans loved him. <laughs> and he, he's out there with, with KKK on his back, but he was such a good babyface then at the time towards the end of, the, of his career. They didn't care. They still cheered him and loved him. So far, let's who won't be able to be there in August at uh, the CAC. When you're up there, you know, you're accepting the award. What is something you want to tell, you know, the fans that'll be there and our listeners listening to this right now? What is something you'd like to tell them about your father? And that's a great question. And that's something, you know, I've been thinking about since, you know, having the conversation with, with Brian Blair a few weeks ago and, and exactly what I want to say when I get up there to um, accept the award. And like, so my brother will be there with me and he's going to have things to say as well. Um, you know, a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people know about his, his wrestling career. And like I said, there's things out there where if you don't know, you know, you can look it up and see matches and, and read and, and, and all that good stuff. Um, but what people don't know about, unless we tell them, is just about, you know, who he was as a person and, and as a father. Um, you know, he, he was a great father to us. Uh, 
and we were lucky enough to be able to have him um, at home with us as we were growing up. Um, had we been born, you know, earlier in life, you know, we wouldn't have been that lucky. And so, you know, that's the main thing I, I'm really going to try to get across when I stand up to accept the award. But even now, just, you know, talking about just what a, what a great person he was. Funny. I mean, you could always count on if you were in any sort of situation where um, maybe, you know, a family, like a boring family get together or something like that. You better believe he was going to do something or say something to keep you entertained and, and keep things going and keep it uh, and, and make things funny. Um, because so my dad's family wasn't from here. My dad was originally from Baltimore, but my mom's family was from here. So of course we had a lot, we had a lot of, you know, family outings and things with my mom's family. And so my dad would just, you know, sit there and he would, he would rib her family and do all these different things to where a lot of people would, when you would think would get upset by it or not like that, but they loved it. They loved when he ribbed them um, because they felt like, Oh wow, this, this former professional wrestler that, He's playing a practical joke on me, you know. They they almost felt you know accepted, um, and he loved doing that uh, up until um, up until right before he passed. I'll I'll tell you guys a quick story before we go if I can. So my dad was in the hospital, um, and at the time, um, and this wasn't right when he passed. This was probably about four or five months before he passed, and so uh, he'd been in the hospital. He hadn't been feeling well, and so I go to visit him one day when I get off work, and the nurse pulls me aside and she says, "Hey, I, I gotta talk to you." And I'm like, "What's going on?" And she says, well, um, you know, I think your dad's getting worse. And I said, well, why do you think that? She goes, he doesn't know where he's at. He's, he's saying things like, where am I? Who are you? Blah, blah, blah. And so at first, immediately, I'm like, oh, my God, this is awful, you know. And as she's talking to me, because we're right outside his room, I can see him. He's sitting there in his hospital bed laughing his ass off. Like, he's messing with her the whole day. So I get in there, and I'm like, Dad, you can't mess with these people like that because they're going to try to run more tests. They're going to think something's seriously wrong with you. They're not going to let you go home. But that was his way of, of keeping himself entertained by messing with these nurses and doctors by pretending like there was something more wrong with him than what there was. Um, so, again, just goes to show you, like, he almost couldn't turn it off. <laughs> like, it was just a part of him where he constantly had to be to be ribbing someone or, or giving someone a hard time about something. <laughs> well, I just want to say congratulations on, uh, you know, your, your your father's induction there with the CAC and it was a pleasure for me to meet him back in 2010 uh, at the reunion and all that so but I'm going to pass the mic back over to Glenn alright looks like it's time for us to wrap up this edition of Wrestling Memories big thank you to our guest Cody and of course my co-host Mike McCurdy for Wrestling Memories I'm Glenn Broggett so long for now